So you're going to say one, two, three, clap, and then we're going to clap. <laughs> Matt, clap, you better clap, cancel clap, the next one. Cancel one, two, the next three, one. One, two, three, clap. Okay. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by who hosts this podcast. So as our listeners know, we've had a bunch of different hosts for the podcast over the past few months, and we are going to continue to have some guests coming in over the summer before we return to a bit more of a usual lineup. And so I've got some great guests this week with me. So I'm Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health. Chris Gill is away for a bit longer. And as you know, uh, Jennifer Ryder is uh, no longer at BU, so she is not going to be on the podcast. So today I am going to be joined by Dr. Lisa Bodner from the University of Pittsburgh's Department of Epidemiology. Welcome, Lisa. Hey. Thanks, Matt. And thanks for taking the risk on including Jamie and in Oh, it's it's not a risk. This one is is guaranteed to be a success. And we've also got Dr. Jamie Gratis from my own department of epidemiology here at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Jamie. Hi. How are you guys? Great. Doing great. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we are gonna talk about a study that looks at the impact of the Netflix series 13 Reasons Why on its impact on suicide. And while this is not a, a brand new study, this is one of the, the most cited, cited isn't the right word, altmetric studies of the previous year. And so we thought we'd take a look at it. And then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about a blog post on whether PhDs should be called doctor or not, particularly in the media. And then in our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll get into some things that have made us laugh out loud or just blew our minds. So let's get into our segment one. Before we do, I do want to make a disclaimer on this one. Uh, this one is we are going to be talking about suicide, and that may be uh, of concern to some people. So if so, this may not be the episode for you. Also, if you are struggling with suicide or suicide ideation. We do want to provide the number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Okay, so let's go on to our first segment. And as I said, we're going to talk about an article that looked at the impact of Netflix 13 Reasons Why series, which I to be have to admit, I didn't even know it was a, a series. I thought it was a, a movie before we did this because I haven't actually seen the series. Uh, but we're, look at the impact on suicide from a study that was published in the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. The study was entitled The Association Between the Release of Netflix 13 Reason Why and Suicide Rates in the United States, an Interrupted Time Series Analysis, and that is why we actually asked uh, Lisa to be on the podcast because she's an expert in time series. Uh, apparently not. Not true. It, this is by first author uh, Jeffrey Bridge of the Abigail Wexner Research Institute at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And as always, let me give you some headlines on this one from when the study was first released. So the new scientist says, analysis, did Netflix 13 Reasons Why really increase suicide rates? Vice says, is 13 Reasons Why Really as Dangerous as People Say? It's complicated. And Medical Health News says 13 Reasons Why linked to a 28.9% rise in youth suicides rate in the months after the show's release. And then Eureka Alert, and I thought this was interesting, says no clear evidence of an increase in adolescent suicide after 13 Reasons Why, which seems to be in conflict with the abstract of the study and the way the authors present it, although perhaps they are drawing their own conclusions based on the data, and we can get into that. So, Lisa, would you start us off by describing the study? Tell us what they did and what they found. Yeah, I would love to. So, 13 Reasons Why is a TV series that Netflix put out uh, in 2017. It's about a teenage girl who dies by suicide, and she leaves audio tapes behind that detail the 13 reasons why she ended her life. So Matt, you told us that you hadn't heard of this before. Jamie, had you? I had heard of it, but I had not watched it. Yeah, so I had heard of it when this first came out. I didn't watch it either, but I did some reading into, it's pretty interesting. So the 
series generated a lot of debate and controversy and mostly about concerns about suicide contagion. So suicide contagion is the thought that suicidal behavior can be transmitted either directly or indirectly from one person to another. And adolescents are particularly susceptible to suicide uh, contagion. So there are recommended best practices for media outlets reporting on stories involving suicide. And that involves not promoting simplistic explanations of suicide, not glorifying or romanticizing the person, not presenting suicide as a means of accomplishing a goal, or offering how to, quote unquote, die by suicide. And it's thought that by following these practices, media can actually minimize the risk of suicide contagion with factual and concise reports about suicide. And so the series actually did kind of everything wrong when it came to how the media should be presenting stories of suicide. So they showed the lead character's suicide in graphic detail. It was a very simplistic narrative. Really, it's a show about how bad things can get and how cruel teenagers can be. And this focus on fear really shuts people down instead of having the opposite effect. There was no message of hope. There were no messages about how to prevent suicide. So one mental health expert wrote after this came out that the presentation was scientifically, demonstrably incorrect and dangerous. Mm. Another expert wrote that 13 Reasons Why is the ultimate fantasy of teen suicide ideation. Mm. So 13 Reasons Why put a warning at the beginning of three of its episodes about that this was a topic on suicide, and it did later launch a website with resources and referral information. but And then only a month later did they strengthen the advisories and added a warning about the graphic content, but they only did this warning before the first episode. So now getting into the study, um, you can imagine why people have been interested in whether it was actually true that 13 Reasons Why the release of this series may have increased rates of suicide. So the authors of this study used data from CDC Wonder to get monthly data on deaths in which suicide was the underlying cause. And they calculated monthly unadjusted rates of suicide per 100,000 people. And they were really interested in looking at how this relationship may differ according to age. So they grouped the participants or the population into adolescents and children, which was 10 to 17, early adulthood, 18 to 29, and early to middle adulthood, 30 to 64. And then they performed an interrupted time series analysis. So Matt and Jamie, correct me if I get any of this analysis wrong. That, that'll be um, Jamie's job. <laughs> I'll Google it. <laughs> I've already done that. So this is an interrupted time series analysis is an example of quasi-experimental time series analysis. So let me explain that a bit further. So this type of analysis involves tracking over a long period of time, both before an intervention and then after the intervention to examine the effects of that intervention. The time series part of that title refers to having data over time, and then the interruption part is the actual intervention. And then what we do is we can extrapolate the pre-intervention trend in suicide rates and then compare it with what we would expect based on the absence of an intervention, assuming that trend would remain constant. Now, I thought that an interrupted time series was the same thing as a difference in differences analysis, and it's not. The main difference, if you are in the same position I am, is that it's only looking at a single pre-intervention time point and a single post-intervention time point. So that's the difference. Now, what gets complicated about this analysis is they don't just have rates and trends, but they also have seasonal fluctuations to account for. So they use this method called the Holt-Winters forecasting. And you bet I Googled this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a way to model and predict the behavior of a sequence of values over time. So those are the monthly rates of suicide. And then it models this time series. So the average rate, the trend over time, and then the cyclical repeating pattern, which is the seasonality. 
it takes lots of values from the past, basically, and uses them to predict what they think are typical values in the present and the future. And it does this by combining those three effects that we talked about, the average value, the trend, and the season. Don't ask me to explain beyond that, because mm. that's where my, my knowledge ends. So they had three different time periods, a pre-release time period, which was January 1 of 2013, all the way to the end of February of 2017. So that's a little more than four years of data. And then they released 13 Reasons Why March 1st through, or that's when it was promoted, yep. I guess, from March 1st to the 31st. And then they had a post-release time point, which is April of 2017 through the end of 2017. And so they used this pre-release time period to predict rates of suicide for these two periods, the promotional period and the post-release period. Then they compared the suicide rates of those that they observed versus those that they would expect. They also had a control analysis, which they used a different outcome, which is death by homicide, that they assumed would not be affected by the TV series, but would be influenced by social and environmental events that would potentially influence suicide also. Okay, so what did they find? They observed in this time period from people that were 10 to 64, about 180,000 suicide deaths. And there were three times as many male decedents as females, which is expected, to my understanding. And so based on this interrupted time series analysis and stratifying by age, they showed this interesting relationship in 10 to 17-year-olds. So the pre-release time period, the average rate of suicide was 0.37 per 100,000. They saw a spike in April, which is the month after the release of 0.57 per 100,000. And then the post rate was 0.45, which they found really mostly leveled off in that post-release time period. So they concluded that the release of 13 Reasons Why was associated with about a 29% step increase and in that the bounds around that are 10% to 50% in suicide rates in the month after the release of the TV series. And then in the forecasting analysis, they're comparing the observed rates after the release with what would be expected from the forecasting. So they observed that suicide rates in April, June, and December of 2017 were meaningfully higher than the forecasted rates. March was also higher, and they estimated about 200 excess suicide deaths in children and adolescents from 10 to 17 from April 1st to the end of 2017. And when they removed April, they still saw these excess deaths. They also wanted to stratify by gender. So they looked at girls and boys and saw that among girls, the rate of suicide before the release was 0.22 and after was 0.26 per 100,000. And although this was a 15% step change, the confidence intervals were less precise among girls. It ranged from negative 11% to 50%. And then among boys, though, the rate increased from 0.47 to 0.63 per 100,000. And they calculated this as a 35% step change with bounds around it as 12 to 64%. And then in other age groups, when they stratified, the rates of suicide were not different pre and post release. And when they looked at homicide, there was no difference in homicide rate before and after the release of the TV series. So the authors concluded that the release of 13 reasons why was related to an increase in suicide in 10 to 17 year olds in the U.S., and that we should caution exposure to this series for children and adolescents. Fantastic. So, okay, so if you if we were to take it at face value, we see an increase in suicides post the period of the introduction of the series. The 
effect appears to be only in 10 to 17 year olds and specifically amongst males and not females, which seems to be counter to what they anticipated. They anticipated it would be amongst females and not males. Jamie, what's your what's your take on this study? Is this a is this a good study that we can reliably trust these conclusions? Well, I think the first thing I would say to that is, you know, as a person who studies suicide myself, suicide is an incredibly hard thing to study for a variety of reasons uh, that we could talk about either here or I'm happy to talk to anybody about that's interested that listens to this after the fact. So I just applaud these authors in the first place for, you know, doing this, which seems like it was quite a bit of work to tackle this issue that has been a public health problem for a very long time and only increasingly so, as a lot of the research we've done really hasn't changed the suicide rate at all in decades and decades. So I think, you know, good on the authors for doing this work and, you know, doing a study that I think by and large is pretty reasonable. Like you said, found results, I think, consistent with what we know about suicide contagion generally, although with some surprises mixed in that I didn't anticipate. Certainly, I think the biggest of those is this finding among females that there was not as large of an effect there as there was for males in the 10 to 17 year old age group. So I spent a little bit of time thinking about why that could be. And actually, I usually when I see something like this, I apply my sort of favorite epi explanation for things, which is that there's something about the risk or the rate in the reference group (laughs) that's unusual, and it makes the effect you observe seem weird. But I actually don't think that works here. I'd be interested to hear what you both think of this, because given that suicide is less common among females, we would have expected then the pre-rate to be lower, which it is, like expectation, and then maybe the effect we observe would be higher from pre to post if this really had an effect. And I think other similar studies have found that the effect was larger in females. So I guess I'd turn it back to you both to say, what do you think about all of that? So Lisa, what's your what's your sense on that one? Well, I'm no expert in suicide, but when I looked at these data, one of the things that I considered was whether there were enough girls who were 10 to 17 to really observe an effect. So You know, their analyses suggested a relationship between suicide and the release. It it was obviously the effect was smaller, but less precise. And Mm -hmm. I just wondered if they had, you know, there are, I don't know, something like three times as many suicides or maybe twice in 10 to 17 year olds in boys than in girls. So if we had more of a sample, would we really see this in girls? Yeah, that's something I I was thinking that also 76.3% of the sample was male. And that, you know, as I mentioned before, is an issue we struggle with in suicide research in general, is that actually on the population level, it isn't that common. And so you, you quickly run into small sample issues with a lot of research. And obviously, that's obviously really good news from a population perspective. Uh, absolutely, uh, it makes it it makes it more difficult to study because you have smaller numbers. But obviously, we we want as few suicides as possible. I I want to talk a little bit about the design and the and and really the methods. So, Lisa, I think you you hit the the nail on the head in comparing this to a difference in differences study, which this is is not. And the the one of the big differences between this and a difference in differences study is this has no comparison population. This is only the entire population before the release of 13 Reasons Why and the entire population after 13 Reasons Why. Now, I always start off with all of these studies. I write down what's my what's my prior on these things. And before I, I read this study, my prior was not likely to have an effect, maybe a small one, but that largely has to do with me not knowing the the subject area that well. After I read it, I I am more convinced that there is an effect than I was before, but I do have some skepticism on the size of that effect. And the reason for that is is largely the design. When you look at the data, when you actually, you know, we can't obviously present the data over a, a podcast, but when you look at the data, the data is really noisy. There's a lot of variation in the the suicide rates over time in the period both before and after. Now they use these fancy methods to try and account for that and try and essentially smooth out those differences. But when you have so much noise, it's it's hard to say exactly how much of that noise is attributable to a change in a series being released and how much of that is just changes overall. And I am particularly get concerned when 
the suicide rate was increasing prior to the period at which the the series was released. And so you have two things potentially going on at the same time. You have the increase that is happening due to factors unrelated to the series release, and then potentially something on top of that. And teasing that out is is really challenging when you have no comparison group. And I'm curious what you all thought about that. I have a quick question about it, actually. Sure. So if if there were more months of data after the release, would that have helped in this situation at all? It was something that went through my mind as I was reading this. So it would. I, I mean, it would in the sense that it would tell you what the overall trend was doing a little bit better. But it doesn't tell you whether or not there was something going on in the population at that particular time when the series was released that could have explained mm-hmm. a change in in rates of suicide that are unrelated to the series. Gotcha. Jamie, what's what's your thoughts? Well, one of the things that struck me that I think is related to this point is how long the pre-period was compared to how long the post-period was. And I did wonder if that's because there was so much variability in the pre-period. They just kind of made it longer and longer and longer to try to get to a point where they could even make a trend. So so I don't know if that's related to um, this issue you bring up. But yeah, I think it's, you know, suicide rates have been increasing over time regardless. And so I think you raise a really good point. And they're, they're increasing in that, as you say, they've got data from 2013 all the way through 2017, but the post period is only sort of that middle, uh, sorry, early 2017. And so most of the data is pre, and there is an increasing trend in sort of 2013, 2014, 2015, but it doesn't appear to be a, a strong increase. Whereas in the period 2016, things actually seem to to start to increase. And that's why I get worried about how much we could ever attribute to that 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 period of, of the series being released. Is there a reason, I don't know, to have made the pre-period so much longer? Like, is there a reason I'm not thinking of that they would have done that to make the pre-period my assumption, so much longer? My assumption on that is simply because the data exist, whereas they don't exist much right. post because they were getting ready to do their analysis and published. The other the other concern that I, I really have is, you know, is a 29% increase in suicide rates among just 10 to 17-year-olds, which you know, that's a relative increase. It's worth pointing out that's a relative increase. And so it's a little bit hard to know exactly what to make of that. But is that believable, given that, remember, this is this is the suicide rate for the entire United States for that group. It's not the suicide rate among those who watched the series. And so, you know, whenever I, you know, whenever essentially this becomes uh, almost ecologic data, to me, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm never willing to ascribe causation based on ecologic data, and I don't I don't know if you all had the same reaction as I did. For sure, I did have the note. Isn't this an ecologic study? Yes, <laughs> that that's I what I thought to too. Myself. But I do think you know, given the criticisms about the way Netflix handled Thirteen Reasons Why, and the fact that really at the end of the day, entertainment is probably you know. When the lives are at stake, the easiest way, the easiest thing we could do to just not do it, you know, and, yep. or make it right, you know. Right. And so right. part of me thinks that, yeah, maybe the effect is small, although it's consistent with what we know about suicide contagion and reporting in the media. And even if it prevents a little bit of suicide by getting maybe Netflix to do a better job with subsequent seasons, although I know those have already happened, you know, it will have been worth it to send Netflix this warning through research that this could be doing some harm, even if it's not as big as they say exactly. And it's consistent with the literature to think it would be doing some harm. So I do buy it, but I don't know that I know the exact effect size. Yeah, I was thinking, Jamie, you know, unlike a lot of the exposures that we look at in epidemiology, this is actually an and, you know, we can view it more as an intervention. We can take it away. <laughs> we didn't have to have this series, right? And like you're saying, even if it prevents, I mean, there's no, I don't think there's any harm in getting rid of this intervention, right? right. Or there's, there, there's, there are only benefits to not having a series come out that did all of these things to potentially increase the risk. Yeah. And, and, and it, that sort of gets into a whole another set of issues around, you know, what it is people are consuming and, you know, what we are, our, your kids are, are actually watching. 
Are there any other sources of sort of the typical sources of bias that we think about in in Epi that that concern you? So I'm thinking about you know measurement error, misclassification, selection bias, confounding. Do you worry about any of those things for this particular study? Because you know I would I would assume that that the measurement of suicide is probably not changing dramatically. Not sure about the others. I sort of always worry about all of that. <laughs> well, well, no, 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 and, and, and absolutely you should. I guess what I'm getting at more is for this particular design, do we worry about them? Because oh. if it's a population that if we're looking at the entire population and we're trying to ascribe causation to individuals or individuals watching this program, presumably confounding and measurement error really exists, but we didn't measure those things. We didn't, we did a this sort of ecologic study in which, you know, you don't really deal with confounding. So I, I don't know what to make of that, but I suspect that if you had done this as let's look at everybody who watched the show and those who didn't, you would obviously have lots of confounding because those who watch the show are probably very different from those who didn't. So you'd have to, you have to grapple with that, you know, measurement error. I, I don't, you know, would people legitimately tell you whether or not they had the, the uh, you know, anyone had watched the series. So you'd have all kinds of issues that sort of seem to go away in a study like this, but they don't really, they just are covered over by a design that is inherently weaker. Yeah, I agree with all that. Me too. Jamie, are there issues with the ICD coding of suicide that may change over time? Yeah. So in this country, generally, there are issues with classification of suicide death and misclassification of suicide death, I should say. You know, I mean, it happens at a more local level where death certificates are recorded across cities and towns and states and wherever that happens. So there's just a ton of variability in it. So for a long time, when I was doing research in Denmark, Denmark and the United States had the same suicide rate. Now Denmark's has gone down a bit. Um, but people would always say to me, how could that be possible with Denmark being the happiest country on earth, as it's often referred to? And I would always say, because the U.S. suicide rate is wrong, probably. <laughs> Ours is mm. probably misclassified. Mm. They, pro- they have a mm. very stringent system there for classifying suicide deaths, and we really don't. So my guess is ours is probably a lot higher than the reported rates with most deaths being other deaths being reported as accidents or unintentional overdoses, things like that. It gets very hard after the fact to sort of know what to classify a death as sometimes. Okay. So, I mean, so sort of last word on this, would you say, I mean, I, I, I will speak only for myself, but I'll ask you guys. My, my take on this is that I was skeptical going in. I see some interesting results that make me want to to look further, but I'm not yet convinced that that we can ascribe all of this change to the to the program being released. But I, you know, I'm certainly open to it if if there were stronger evidence. What do you all what's your all final thoughts on this? Sort of one of my final thoughts is that it was interesting that in the discussion, they actually had some evidence that this was consistent, their finding was consistent with some other smaller studies, like that, I think they said that internet searches for suicide increased after the series came out, and a small hospital-based study showed that there was an increase in hospitalizations or ER visits related to suicide. And so it's, you know, somewhat consistent with these small studies. And obviously a lot more needs to be done, but it gave me a little more confidence. Yeah, I would say that overall, I think, you know, this was sort of consistent with what my expectation was about what the findings would be, given what I know about this area. There's some stuff in it, like the finding among girls, that is a little counter to expectation that I think then makes me feel like, well, is there other sort of funky stuff at play here, like the biases you were talking about, Matt? So, again, applaud them for their effort and think, you know, generally consistent with what we know, but some things I would have liked to have a little more information on before making a decision. I I would agree. I mean, I'm I'm I thought it was interesting. It doesn't totally convince me that we're looking at the effect of the program, but I'm 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 intrigued and would would like to see a little bit of more rigorous study. So uh, last thing before we move on, I just want to 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 quote something from this, which which there was one thing that did bother me, which is they say in the discussion first the quasi experimental design, which I have to admit I would dispute this is a quasi experimental design, but fine. That's why I wrote ecologic question mark. Yeah. <laughs> 
First, the quasi-experimental design of our study limits our ability to draw any causal conclusions between the release of 13 Reasons Why and increased suicide rates in young people in the United States. I would agree with that statement. Then they say, nevertheless, the time series and forecasting approach used in this study allow us to make credible inferences about this association, which seems to me (laughs) to completely contradict the previous statement, which I did agree with. So don't don't. Yeah, it seems like they come with the same assumptions, right? Like, why would they be different from one another? Nope. Nope. Okay. All right. So let's move on to our our second segment in which we want to talk about a a blog post by, I I won't say, I'll say a a colleague of ours, Beth Linus, who wrote this blog post back in 2018. And it's something I've wanted to talk about for a while now, but just we haven't had space to do it. And I thought with you both being here and you might have some thoughts on this, the blog post was entitled, Please Call Me Doctor. And she wrote this on October 22nd of 2018. And I'll I'll give you a little bit of this just to kind of lead us into it. She says, last month, NPR's current ombudsman, Elizabeth Jensen, explained why the news organization does not confer doctor on PhDs. It reserves the title for, quote, individuals who hold a doctor of dental surgery, medicine, optometry, osteopathic medicine, podiatric medicine, or veterinary medicine. Beth goes on to say, this news organization's reason for the distinction is that to most listeners, a doctor means practicing medicine. And this ends up, she points out, this is uh, a style that's picked up by most journalistic outlets. And, you know, she refers to this as the AP rule. And she says, by abiding by this, news organizations are failing to create a more informed public and potentially stand to create harm to the scientific method and individuals who dedicate their lives to acquiring the expertise advancing science and policy. And so she then goes on to make the case for why we should be PhDs should be called doctor. And she ends with, we have doctorates of philosophy. Please call us doctor. Now, I'm, I want to get your take on this. And I want to make the distinction between different places in which we might want to be called doctor, which is there is the the news, which is really what she's talking about. But I also want your thoughts on, you know, whether or not you feel like there's a, a we should or shouldn't be called doctor, say, in the classroom or among colleagues. Jamie, let me let me start with you. What's your what are your thoughts on this? Well, actually, I was thinking it would be more interesting to start with Lisa because it just happened to her, as I remember. All right, Lisa, let's go to you then. Lisa actually experienced this firsthand, and I really have not with regard to a news outlet. All right. So this did happen to me. It was a while ago. I was interviewed for NPR, and they sent me the copy, and they called me Ms. Bodner. And I was like, (laughs) what are you doing? Oh, wow. Um, Yes. Yeah. And you know, why does my marital status have anything to do with my what you're going to refer to me as Ooh. in an article? And I hated it. And yes. I asked them to please change it. And they said, no, we can't because this is what our policy is. And I said, please then just refer to me by my full name. Right. Just call me Lisa Bodner in the article. I don't remember what happened, but I also remember telling them to just change the change the sentence structure so you only have to say my name once right lisa bodner comma phd and then you don't have to say my name again exactly but it was you know i think if i didn't really stand up for myself that wouldn't have happened that is that see now that seems to me very different from just saying we're we're not going to apply the title of doctor and go with the suggestion that you had which i think obviously is it gives your title it's very clear on who you are and what your expertise is to 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 do what they did seems incredibly wrong i mean that's like the worst of all possible situations i remember being horrified yeah okay so clearly we all agree that 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 is a situation where it's definitely wrong what about in if we're talking outside of the the news media would you jamie do you feel like this is important for you when you when you teach or amongst your colleagues in in the office you know i used to always be a person who would say i'm not going to make my students call me dr grass (laughs) and actually I have. And only because I look sort of young, honestly. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, I think right away when you're a female, there's sort of a whole other set of judgments that comes into play. And so I do think there is something about using that title in the classroom that sort of establishes an expertise. 
Yeah. That, you know, I think can be important. But it is honestly not something that I get that hung up on um, outside of that. And certainly, funny enough, like as soon as the semester ends, I basically start responding to my students with Jamie, <laughs> um, you know, as soon as that sort of formal relationship ends. But I think it may be important early on in the classroom, you know, in at least those early weeks to kind of establish sort of an expertise in the topic, maybe more so as a woman and maybe more so if you look like you're sort of younger in the profession. Yeah, it does seem to me that that there is a reason that people want to make it clear that I, you know, I'm in the classroom. I'm not your, I'm not your friend. I am the person who has to, uh, responsibility for educating and, and, you know, leading this class. And I also have a responsibility for assigning grades and therefore we want to establish a professional relationship. It's not, I have to admit, it's not something that I'm good at because I'm, I've never really, felt comfortable responding to the title but I have also it also has been pointed out to me that that is something that differs obviously for men and for women and that I have been told that it would be better to go by the title so that when everybody goes by the title it's it it's not in any way seen as something that women are having to do to stand up for the their authority in the classroom and I I'm sympathetic to that as well Lisa how about you in in settings other than the the media so in the classroom, I actually specifically tell people not to call me Dr. Bodner. I think it's probably my own pathology that involves something like, you know, imposter syndrome. My sister's a medical doctor. I don't know. But I tell students not to call me that because because we are colleagues. That's kind of my approach to it. But I think that Every university is a bit different. The culture is a bit different when it comes to how people refer to their professors. Mm -hmm. And if you're, you know, if you're teaching undergrads versus graduate students, I think that that can vary. And really, you know, when I came to Pitt, I noticed that everybody called themselves doctor. And when I was at UNC training, you know, nobody called their professors doctor. So it, it seems like it really just varies. So you said you actively tell your students what you want to be called. I have done this as, as well. And, and it has been, as I mentioned to you, it's been pointed out to me that there are reasons why I should probably stop doing this. But one of them that hadn't actually occurred to me at all is that for students from, you know, students who come from other countries in which, you know, it's considered to be rude to call your professor by their first name, you're now putting those students in a, in a uncomfortable position. And so I have kind of defaulted a little bit to the position of, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell people what they should or shouldn't call me. If I don't do that, most students will default to professor or doctor. But, you know, it seems to me that that's a, a, that is, that is a change that I have made over time. And I feel like I'm, I'm starting to understand it better. The reasons why one, one might want to use, use the title, even if you're not insisting on it, simply just not, not say one way or the other. Any last thoughts anyone wants to have on this title? Yeah, I, you know, Matt, I just wanted to say that in the media, I think it's so important now in the time of COVID yeah. that epidemiologists are viewed as experts. Absolutely. And, and, you know, with so much fake news and fake science out there, you know, we should be acknowledged for the expertise that we have so that hopefully we can convey to the public that we know something. Yeah, absolutely. Matt, I, I have a question for you. Yep. So you and I don't have doctorates of philosophy. Yeah. You and I have something else. <laughs> yeah. So, so Jamie and I. So you think it makes a difference? Yeah. So so for those who are are not familiar, Jamie and I actually never got doctoral degrees. We only have uh, <laughs> bachelor's degrees, and we've been pretending this whole time. Uh, no, we have uh, doctor of science degrees. Yeah. Does it matter? No, I don't think it does. I mean, it seems to me that doctor of science, doctor of public health, PhD, to me, those are all equivalent in that those are academic degrees. And therefore, I don't I don't think it it changes based on which one of those degrees. But do you? I think people are more confused about what to call us. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. They don't quite yeah. know what that degree means, in my I experience. Th I, th I think you may be right. Um, so just to just to circle back before we finish this, I do I do want to end with 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 seconding your point there, Lisa, because I do. We we talked mostly about situations outside of the media, but I would agree with you. In within the media, there I do think it's actually kind of kind of important that it is clear 
that we have sufficient training in what it is we're an expertise in what it is that we say we do and and therefore the the title there seems to me to be more important definitely all right so let's move on to our last segment which is our amazing and amusing segment where we get into some of the things that are a bit lighter and either amuse us or are just of interest to us lisa do you want to do you want to go first Sure. So you guys have known me a long time and you know that I'm a big fan of swearing. Uh, I I have noticed that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to swear on this podcast, but for that, you should tune into my Twitter. (laughs) Just just so you know, just so you know, I prepped Nick and he had a a bleep button ready to go. And I thought pretty much this whole segment was just going to be one long. (laughs) I am really doing a good job of controlling myself. So you guys. Okay. I wanted to talk about this interesting study that I found out about one of the benefits of swearing. So have you heard that swearing helps people tolerate pain? Oh, um, I have not heard that, but that is certainly my experience. (laughs) Well, does it help me tolerate it? I don't know. I don't think I tolerate pain at all, but it it is definitely a product of pain. I've heard that people who swear are smarter. Oh, yes, there is research to show that that they actually have, yeah, that they've shown that they have a better mastery of the vocabulary. Really? (laughs) seems goofy. That doesn't sound. Yeah. No, it's true. That's actually a fact. We can say it here on this podcast. That's been proven. (laughs) A word we love in research. (laughs) Right, right. So interestingly, trials have shown that repeating the F word increases our ability to tolerate physical pain. And even more cool is that it helps to decrease psychological pain that we may feel when we're being rejected in a social setting, which is <laughs> really interesting. Okay, so some researchers who work in what they call the swear lab, which sounds really fun. I want wonder- to be part of the swear lab. <laughs> I know, we need that. I've heard of a swear jar, but... Swear lab. Wow. Yeah, there are some fun YouTube videos of the swear lab. So they wondered how swearing induces a stress related pain relief. So they thought, well, maybe swearing alleviates your pain by distracting you because swear words sound funny and they're somewhat novel, or if they somehow elicit an emotional arousal that is like how we regulate emotions, they help us regulate emotions. So The researchers thought, well, wouldn't it be great if we could create a swear word that has the same pain-reducing qualities, but it isn't offensive? And so they Mm -hmm. sought to make up a swear word (laughs) that was both humorous and novel. Okay. All right. Yeah. So they created two swear words. I'm going to tell you in a second. So what they did is they had this trial where they asked 92 people to hold their hand in an ice bath. And this is kind of a common thing that people in pain research do to their poor subjects. I actually did it once in a research study. Does it, it was in a does pain it study. Yes, totally. Yeah, I would believe it, it does. It wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they, I did an ice bath, and then they cut off my circulation with the cuff, and I had to do all of these tests. That's, you know, when you're seeking money. When I was going to say, why? who signs up for this? People who yeah. swear a lot. Yeah, I was also in the placebo group of an allergy trial when I was an undergrad that was the worst experience oh, no. of my life. It was terrible. Oh, no. Anyway. Okay, so 92 people put your hand in the ice bath, and then they look at your pain threshold, is, which is when you start to feel pain, and your pain tolerance, which is how long you can stand the pain. Each person did this trial four times, saying four different words each time. So the first word, or they randomized these with people. So one word was solid, which is a neutral word. One word was the F word. And then the two words that they made up were fouch. Fouch. Like fouch you, Matt. Fouch. Nick, Nick, <laughs> Nick, are we allowed to say fouch? Fouch. Fouch is okay. We got the Nick, thumbs up from Nick. It gives us a thumbs up. Okay. And the other one is twiz pipe. Ooh, that is disgusting. <laughs> that is hard to say. My ear. Twiz oh, my, my ears. Twiz pipe? Uh, oh, you wow. guys. Twiz pipe. You got the mouth of a 
trucker. No offense is, to truckers is, who are probably lovely people, but wow. That is not easy to say. You, <laughs> twist I like you my twist, is easy to say. You twist pipe like a sailor. Yeah, well, one of the things that they did in this swear lab was actually they wrote down a whole bunch of potential swear Oh, that swear must words. have been the funnest day. Yeah, and then they said, like, a, a one-syllable swear word is probably what we need. Like, those are the best swear yes. words. Yes, my goodness. So anyway, sure. so... Schnauzer. <laughs> so they found in this study that the F word was the only one <laughs> that helped to increase your pain threshold and your pain tolerance. Whoa, shut the front yeah. door. Yeah. Shut the phone. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so they said, well, it's not just swearing, the, the pain, the pain alleviation effect of swearing is not just about a distraction because you could distract yourself kind of by saying any weird word and that swearing actually holds a lot of social and psychological power. So Fouch, you guys. Fouch, you guys. Wow. I love it. That was awesome. All right. I'm going to go. I'm going to go second because mine is probably the least awesome of the three of them. But I just found this one. Well, (laughs) mine was was just a simple one, but I just found this funny. So everybody remembers the Save the Whales campaign. Mm -hmm. And then there was Save the Polar Bears. Yeah. And then there was the backlash of how come it is that you only want to save the cute and fuzzy animals. Sure. So there was this uh, research group who published a paper in conservation biology. The lead author was someone named Magdalena Lenda. Lenda. And they were answering the incredibly important question as to whether they wanted to know the effects of amusing memes on concern for unappealing species. (laughs) So this was a group they were working in Poland, and they analyzed Polish people's interest in themed internet memes featuring the proboscis monkey, which I don't know the proboscis monkey well enough to say that it is not attractive, but (laughs) they apparently consider that the proboscis monkey is unappealing. And so they examined Google trend data and Google searches, and they searched popular media materials to estimate interest in the proboscis monkey in Poland. And then they took photos of the monkey when presented with humor in internet memes, and they found that that it attracted as much interest as usually more popular species than, say, koala, pandas, and orangutans. And what they found was amusing internet memes spread by social media positively correlated with increasing interest in unappealing species such as this particular proboscis monkey. And therefore, they conclude, conservation marketing that includes amusing memes and social media may provide a worthwhile complement to traditional campaigns that are likely to influence individuals who are unaffected by the usual means. Now, I do not believe that that is actually going to be effective, (laughs) but I love that people are doing research like this. And uh, as a... uh, if anyone considers me to be an unappealing species, then I would like memes spread of me. And Nick, yes. just so you know, Nick uh, Nick now has a picture of a proboscis monkey as his Zoom background. So there you go. You guys, this monkey is fouching ugly. Oh, it's fouching ugly. <laughs> fouching ugly. Jamie, what do you got for us? Well, summer is here. Despite the pandemic, we're in the eight weeks of the year in Massachusetts when you can do things outside <laughs> and, <laughs> and not feel like your skin hurts. And because of that, people are going to be starting to have a lot of socially distanced barbecues, I think, and other get-togethers in their backyards. And one thing you've got to worry about at this time of year is mosquitoes. Yes, you and do. Perhaps using your insecticides at your house, which we all know have harmful consequences and in fact are leading to an increased resistance to insecticides that I learned from this paper I'm about to talk about. So this is a paper published in Acta Tropica. Mm. The lead author is Hamadi Dieng, who is in Malaysia. And really the whole list of authors is at institutions that looks like my travel itinerary following COVID. (laughs) When I can finally get out of here and go someplace is cool because I really miss traveling. Yep. 
take us yeah, with Yeah, there's Malaysia, there's the Cayman Islands on here, Japan, Indonesia. I mean, let's just go to them, go to them all. And the title <laughs> of the paper is The Electronic Song, Scary Monsters and Nice Sprites Reduces Host Attack and Mating Success in the Dengue Vector 80s Aegypti. Do you guys oh, know yeah. this song by Skrillex? Oh. <laughs> Scary monsters and nice sprites. So I will tell you that I am a lady of a certain age, and I know <laughs> one Skrillex song, and it's this one. And I really? like it. Uh. I like this song. And when I found this article, I was like, let me listen to what song this is. And I was like, it's the one that I like that I never knew the name of because I'm too old. Could to you know. sing a little bit? I yeah, know. Sing it's it. el- sing it's it. electronic dance music, guys. Be oh. cool. Be oh, cool, well, do guys. the beat. Do the beat. I can't do the do beat. It. Listen, I wish I could play oh. it for you right now. I actually, my dad is a musician, and I emailed him to ask if copyright laws prevented us from playing yeah. it on free associations. Yeah. The answer okay. is yeah. more complicated than I cared to get into. Hum, hum, hum the Fouchin song. You're going to have to go from your podcast app to your iTunes, wherever your kids get music these days that are listening uh, to this. Go over you. there. Get scary monsters and nice sprites. It's Sounds actually good. a very good song. But what they yeah. found was that playing this song near a poor restrained hamster, which makes me very sad, oh. delayed attacks by the mosquitoes, reduced blood feeding, and disrupted mating in the mosquitoes, particularly in the females. So they suggest that this is a potential music-based mosquito control strategy that may delay or decrease, sorry, our dependence on insecticides. So as what? my husband, I told my husband this about crazy. this and he said, tell people when you get your Grillix going, get your Skrillex going. <laughs> <laughs> and your mosquito problem will be no more. And you can have your nice socially distanced barbecue and not even have to worry. That's awesome. That Jamie, so did they have a control song? No, they didn't. Well, they had control mosquitoes that weren't listening to the song. Apparently. (laughs) The song song would also be fun at a barbecue, I think. So totally. Okay. well, thank you for that. And that is the end of our program. If you get any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at PopHealthyX or you can tweet me at at ProfMadFox or you can tweet Lisa at at Lisa Bodner, or you can tweet Jamie at, at Jamie Gratis, but you have to spell it right because uh, a little known fact, Jamie and I have been friends for, uh, what, almost two decades, and for about the first decade and a half, I was misspelling her name and she never said anything. <laughs> it is not, my parents thought, you know, it would be fun. I, I could go into the story, but I won't. I have two eyes in my name, which is unusual. So I don't notice anymore when people spell it wrong because everyone spells it wrong. J-A-I-M-I-E, gratis. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and having the best proboscis monkey background in the world. Thank you for joining us. Ouch, yeah. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs> <laughs>